Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm Will Oremus. And I'm April Glazer. Hey everyone, welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We are recording this on the afternoon of Tuesday, November 28th. On today's show, we'll revisit the pending death of net neutrality and how people who are concerned about that can stop it. We'll also discuss YouTube's ongoing problems airing disturbing videos involving children. And then a conversation with Lena Khan, the legal policy director of the Open Markets Institute, to talk about AT&T's now troubled attempt to merge with Time Warner and the DOJ's rare challenge of that, as well as how this impacts tech companies. And lastly, don't close my tabs, our picks for the best on the web this week. All right, April, how are you doing in this post-Thanksgiving week? I'm good. I am happy to be back at work, actually. Um, how are you doing, Will? Weirdly, I feel the same. I'm, I'm ready for more news. Bring it on. <laughs> okay, you're going to wish you hadn't have said that. Um, well, what's, what, what's been uh, kind of catching your eye this week? I know a lot has happened on the YouTube front. Yeah, so there are some new developments in a story we talked about on one of our first episodes. If you'll recall, YouTube got in trouble when the New York Times found some seriously disturbing children's videos on its site for kids called YouTube Kids. Everything there was supposed to be kid safe. There was really gross and, and creepy stuff on there. Now YouTube is in trouble again for a different but related problem, which is that videos on the, their main site, so this is just YouTube.com, the one everybody goes to, that exploit kids in various ways. Um, you have uh, these videos, a lot of them originating from Eastern Europe, showing young children in vulnerable scenarios. They, they have kids tied up in a doctor's chair like having violent procedures done on them. There was one where a man in a clown suit uh, kidnaps a kid and stuffs him into a washing machine. I mean, this is, this is really awful stuff. But the thing about it is that it's, it's like so weird that it manages to avoid the algorithmic moderation that YouTube uses. Um, so they use this software that's designed to catch, um, you know, for example, child pornography or uh, physical violence or that kind of thing. Um, but it doesn't catch stuff that's just plain like weird and disturbing. Um, and so uh, BuzzFeed found a lot of these types of videos, brought them to YouTube's attention, and uh, YouTube took them down. But BuzzFeed actually discovered that they had been brought to YouTube's uh, attention before, and YouTube did not take them down until it was splashed all over the web and all over Twitter. Um, it looks like the company, once again, has been uh, slow to respond. Um, now advertisers who are seeing their ads run against this kind of awful content are pulling out. This is the second time this year, actually, that there's been several major companies pulling out of advertising on YouTube. But I think what bothers me about it is not that they can't get a handle on this stuff, but that they always assure us that they do. It's like, oh, we've got this under control. We, we, there was a problem with the algorithm, but we've fixed that. Um, you know, there was another story that, that might sound totally unrelated, but it's the same kind of theme, uh, where last week ProPublica, the investigative reporting nonprofit, found that Facebook had um, was still allowing people to post racially discriminatory housing ads. This was something that ProPublica first uh, brought our attention to a year ago. Facebook said, oh, we're so sorry about that. Uh, we'll fix it. 
The government said, oh, good, Facebook's going to fix it. So the government closed its investigation. And then YouTube comes back. I mean, sorry, then ProPublica comes back a year later. And it turns out Facebook didn't fix it. You can still place ads, housing ads on Facebook that exclude, for instance, black people or people who have an interest in Islam. Um, I mean, this is this should be illegal. And nobody, you know, the government does not seem to be up to the task of, of holding them accountable. It's just journalists who are doing it really right now. The, the thing that bothers me the most is that. Uh, nonprofits and advocacy groups have called and, you know, individuals who are concerned have 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 raised these concerns multiple times and nothing is done unless there's the like blaring light of the press on them. And so uh, clearly there's a, a, a lack of respect for their users in, in this case. Um, and uh, and and they're just not going to do anything unless they're pressed to. No, it's it's going to be really hard. I, I liked your point about the fact that that you know they don't seem to have the will to take care of this. It's an interesting analogy is the issue of copyrighted material on these types of platforms. Um, you know, we saw originally on YouTube a big issue was that they were you know there were pirated shows, but the recording industries and the studios had the the legal power mm-hmm. to force them to develop algorithms that really work for digital rights management. But there's nobody out there who's representing the interests of kids in Eastern Europe in the same way um, and putting, you know, money into forcing these companies to take that kind of responsibility. It'll be really interesting to see whether just being publicly shamed is enough to do the trick. But April, tell me about the big story on your beat this week. I have a feeling it's going to have a familiar ring. Yeah, and that's a really good point about them being excellent when it comes to copyright violations, but not when it comes to child exploitation. Um, Yeah, so I've been focusing on network neutrality. It's something that we talked about last week because Chairman Pai, who was appointed by Trump, uh, although he was at the FCC prior to uh, prior to his uh, appointment of being the chairman of the commission under Trump, uh, dropped his proposal that would officially rescind the network neutrality rules that were passed in 2015 under President Obama. And um, and yeah, I mean, it was a real Thanksgiving news dump. Right. And uh and we're now analyzing that, thinking about what that means and just looking at this, you know, really menacing timeline for when net neutrality will no longer be a set of rules that Internet providers like Comcast and Verizon and AT&T have to follow. So I understand there have been some problems with the comment process. Yeah. You know, the FCC, when they're proposing new rules, they uh, ask the public to comment on what they think of those rules before finalizing them. And in this case, when the FCC opened up a window for the public to weigh in about their thoughts on the proposal to repeal net neutrality, um, there were a lot of irregularities that popped up. For one, uh, it was discovered by researchers that a lot of bots or automated accounts had been posting comments. There were 22 million comments posted, by the way. It was the largest proceeding in terms of public participation in the FCC's history. And when I say bots, I don't just mean like forms that you fill out from an advocacy website that helps you comment to the FCC. I mean, like, uh, there's not actually a person there behind the comment posting it. It's just being done in an automated way. There were also comments from dead people uh, in the docket, right? And those comments from bots and dead people were actually a, a minority of the comments and were also uh, representing views that were uh, against net neutrality, so that were in favor of Pi's proposal. The overwhelming majority of 
the millions of comments that were submitted were organic. They were from people um, that were actually uh, supporting the idea of keeping the net neutrality rules and not going along with Pi's idea. So with all of those irregularities, Jessica Rosenworcel, who is a uh, FCC commissioner, has been calling for public hearings to occur to kind of give the public a fair shot at weighing in. Um, There was also a a cyber attack on the comment system during this time, right? So there was just so many things that happened. Um, You know, some people are saying that it's time to uh, slow down and give the public a fair shot to 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 say their piece about, um, you know, why net neutrality matters to them or, or why it doesn't. All right. But I mean, how realistic is that at this point? Because it seems pretty clear that even though the the comment process was clearly flawed, and and that seems like a big problem that has to be addressed for the future, if nothing else, uh, it it was pretty clear that people were against this. I mean, the FCC knew that most people do not want this. They're, you know, uh, Chairman Ajit Pai wanted to push it through anyway. What realistic hope, if any, is there for the folks who, are, who who still hope to stop it somehow? Right. And so, you know, the fact that Pi dropped the news on Thanksgiving and the fact that this is being pushed through, regardless of the fact that there were all these irregularities, shows that there's an agenda here and the agenda is to repeal net neutrality. And that could happen, you know, um, as early as by the end of, of January, the rules could be off the books, right? The FCC is slated to vote mid-December. Um, and that means uh, the majority of the commission is Republican. They will probably vote along with Pi. Uh, that means that, you know, about a month and a half after that, after, you know, they're published in the Federal Register and everything is processed uh, by the end of January, internet providers will be allowed to offer websites, uh, you know, fast access to users for a fee and create kind of this tiered internet. Now, there are some things that people can do. You know, for one, uh, people can uh, call Congress, call their representatives and tell their representatives, particularly if they're Republicans, to pressure the FCC through back channels. You know, it doesn't have to be uh, this public proclamation, um, but pressure the FCC to pull the bricks and 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 reconsider. And and the way to do that would be to make a convincing argument, perhaps that, you know, having a, a tiered Internet would be harmful to your business or that uh, ISP discrimination would be bad for your nonprofit or, you know, you're afraid as a local Internet user. But but really make the case to uh, to representatives that that your vote is on on the line about this and that they need to, to step in and, and, and urge the FCC to stop this. And, and the truth is, is that Pi does have the kind of political cover to shrink back and to say, you know, actually, we're going to stop for a second. And that's because there are a number of cases right now, particularly one in the Supreme Court uh, that AT&T has brought um, about, you know, the FCC's authority to, to even be regulating here. I, I admire that you still have hope on this front. I think this may be one case where I am more skeptical or, or more pessimistic than you are. I mean, Ajit Pai was brought in to do exactly this. I don't, I don't see the hope here, but I, I admire those who are still fighting the good fight. Yeah, you know, I I think that this is not going to be over. I mean, we do expect, you know, there to be uh, court challenges to this once the rules are passed. But just because there's a court challenge doesn't mean that an injunction is going to be granted. And that doesn't mean that necessarily um, ISPs will be stopped from discriminating. I want to make sure that people understand that just because, you know, there's there's definitely going to be challenged in court. That doesn't mean that um, things won't continue uh, down the path that Pi would like them to continue in the interim. And uh, and really, you know, this is uh, a time for people to make a big fuss about this. So uh, 
and and to to target that to uh to probably Republican representatives. We did see that work, you know, for instance, in Obamacare, there were a few people that split with their party, um, you know, because they did feel such pressure from their constituents. So we might see something similar here. All right, April, I think we can leave it there for now. This is definitely an issue that is not going away and we're not going to stop talking about it. Apologies to listeners who aren't interested, but it's a big deal. Now it's time for a short break. When we come back, we'll have our interview with Lena Khan. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on creditworthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at AppleCard.com. So a quick note to our listeners before our interview, Lena Khan, who will be joining us, is with the Open Markets Institute, which used to be part of New America, a partner of If Then, the podcast that you're listening to. Uh, Open Markets and New America parted ways over a controversy regarding Google, a longtime funder of New America. Open Markets has long been critical of Google's uh, market power and the way they exercise that. And there was a very public dispute uh, about the way that funding is leveraged and how it affected open markets. That said, we are jazzed to have Lena join us. She is a total expert in her field. Our guest today is Lena Khan. She's the legal policy director of the Open Markets Institute and a visiting fellow at Yale Law School. She writes about antitrust law and competition policy. Thanks so much for joining us, Lena. Good to be here. So we're going to mostly focus this conversation on the uh, proposed merger between AT&T, a massive telecom, and Time Warner, which uh, is a huge content distributor. They own things like HBO and CNN, and that's an $85 billion deal that's on the table. But before that merger can uh, glide through and, uh, and actually happen, it needs to be approved by the U.S. government. And Trump's Department of Justice has challenged that merger as of last week. They said that as of right now, the way the merger is structured, it does not allow for enough competition in the market and that some structural changes need to occur in order for the uh, merger to uh, pass the muster of the federal government. These types of things don't happen often in the antitrust world. Should we be concerned about the action that's being taken here? So I... I think it's actually worth recalling that challenges to vertical mergers was actually a mainstay of antitrust through the 60s and 70s, and actually even as recently as the late 1990s. So, um, you know, late 90s, uh, Time Warner was merging with Turner, uh, which was the merger of these two uh, programmer programming operators. And at that time, uh, the Federal Trade Commission noted that uh, Time Warner um, had also had an affiliation with TCI, which was a um, cable operator and a 
observed that there was a, you know, a potential conflict of interest that would emerge. And so the FTC permitted that merger to go through, but required a divestiture to separate the cable operator from the programmer to uh, make sure that there was no conflict of interest in this way. So that dynamic is exactly what's at play with this deal, where you have a vertical merger again on the table between a um, programming operator and a distributor. And so I think, you know, the issues that that we're seeing are actually issues that we've seen before and that the government has challenged before, too. And so just to clarify, when you say a vertical merger, you're talking about a merger between two companies that are really sort of in different businesses, whereas a horizontal merger is one like when AT&T tried to merge with T-Mobile. Those are both wireless companies, and that, in fact, was blocked on antitrust grounds, right? Exactly. So a horizontal merger is when you have two companies that compete in exactly the same sector and exactly the same line of business that are trying to merge. So, you know, um, yeah, when you see all the rental cards mergers between $1.30 and Hertz and Avis and Budget, those are all, you know, horizontal mergers, whereas vertical mergers is when you have two companies that are oftentimes in the same industry but are operating at different points in the supply chain. So, you know, if you had a bakery merge with a flour mill, for example, it would be an instance where kind of an input into the the baker um, was kind of being acquired by by the baker. Why is it bad, though, if this murder did go through? Or why is that, you know, why, why is the DOJ's challenge here? Um, why does it make sense? So the worry is that AT&T DirecTV, um, which is a dominant distributor, will use its control over content, um, which it would have through acquiring Time Warner, to basically discriminate against or disfavor rivals so that they can no longer compete on a level playing field. So Time Warner has a lot of, you know, must-have content, you know, be it through HBO or be it through TNT, which carries a lot of sport networks. And basically what the merge entity will be able to do is go to other distributors and basically jack up the cost of carrying Time Warner content. And in the past, um, you know, if if Time Warner were to jack up the cost of its um, of its content, these other distributors would be able to, you know, walk away and that would hurt Time Warner in the form of lower revenues. But the worry is that once Time Warner is merged with AT&T DirecTV, even if distribu- other uh, distributors walk away, well, that will mean is that that other company will be less competitive because it will no longer be carrying this must-have content. And so that we can potentially then see subscribers defect from rival distributors back to AT&T DirecTV. And so what this merger would uh-huh. do is create a perverse incentive for AT&T DirecTV to jack up the price of content, and then it would benefit either way, either through its rivals having to pay it more, and so it would be able to extort all these other companies, or in the form of gaining more subscribers precisely because it's depriving competitors of that must-have content. All right, so zooming out for a second, um, you know, this is a, a an interesting situation politically because it's a time when a lot of people on the left are actually finding themselves in alignment with the Trump administration on something, right? Because people from the left have been, have been calling for stricter scrutiny, um, stricter anti, antitrust scrutiny of a lot of these kinds of mergers for a long time. Nobody's been listening to them. Now, Trump, now under Trump, we're doing it. But the concern, one of the concerns here is, you know, 
is this really a shift in philosophy, as you say, or is it, you know, a result of Trump's personal vendettas? Because, uh, you know, there's a lot of the talk about potential antitrust scrutiny of Amazon, which I think we'll, we'll get to in a minute. That has been fueled by Trump's personal enmity to The Washington Post, which is owned by Jeff Bezos, who also owns Amazon. I mean, we don't want we don't want a, a situation where the executive branch is using antitrust scrutiny as a lever to punish his political rivals, right? Absolutely. A vengeance-based or vendetta-based antitrust approach would be deeply disturbing, deeply troubling. I think this puts us in a difficult position insofar it raises the question of, you know, what do you do when the Trump administration is doing the right thing potentially for the wrong reason? Um, And so I think, you know, this is definitely a situation where we think Congress should hold oversight hearings and basically ensure that there was no improper uh, political interference or meddling um, from the White House. And so I think, you know, that would be one potential check on this. Um, I, I do think that this approach of requiring structural divestitures is actually consistent with conservative philosophy. Um, and so, you know, Macon Del Rahim, is, who is the new head of the antitrust mm-hmm. division, gave a speech the other week where he basically laid this case, la- laid out this case for structural relief, noting that, you know, antitrust is a law enforcement regime. And so you really want um, the government to basically be creating the incentive structures so that um, companies, um, you know, are are acting in pro-competitive ways. What you don't want to put the government in the position of is policing business conduct in kind of a day-to-day way, which is what the kind of behavioral conditions the Obama administration relied on did. It kind of made um, it put it put Justice Department and the Federal Trade Commission in more of a regulatory role. And so I think you know there are ways to square what's happening with a consistent conservative philosophy, even if that approach was not taken by, say, the Bush administration. But but I would totally agree that we're in a very strange moment right now politically where um, you are seeing the Trump administration do something that a lot of people um, who've been troubled by excessive concentration, excessive monopolization think should be done. But there are now all these um, additional questions about whether it is improper political motivations that is leading the Justice Department to do this. So no doubt this is a strange moment. On one hand, we have, uh, you know, Trump's FCC pursuing a deregulatory agenda that would uh, grant companies like, you know, AT&T, Comcast, Verizon, even more power and, and the power to make even more money, at least when it comes to uh, how they distribute uh, broadband. Um, and then, you know, over at the DOJ, when it comes to antitrust, we see the, uh, you know, Trump's uh, Department of Justice trying to, to limit the power of AT&T. So it, it does seem like there's um, there's kind of two things happening simultaneously that don't necessarily uh, harmonize quite well. I totally agree. You know, there's total incoherence here, not just at the level of, you know, one approach is favoring AT&T and the other is disfavoring it, but even at the level of, you know, net neutrality is really about ensuring that dominant um, ISPs can't are not able to discriminate, right? It's kind of a regime of kind of equal access. And what you see um, in the AT&T uh, situation is basically the government saying you cannot discriminate 
um, you know, we, we're not going to allow a market structure to emerge that will give um, a, this merged entity the power to discriminate against um, its rivals, against um, other content producers, against other programmers. And yet in the net neutrality space, what we're seeing the government say is actually these rules that were prohibiting discrimination, we're just going to do away with them. So it's definitely um, an inconsistent and incoherent approach that we're seeing. All right. So, so because we're a tech show, we're interested in the implications here for Silicon Valley. I mean, this is, this is another elephant in the room, I think, when you see this kind of antitrust action in the Time Warner AT&T deal is what might be coming next for companies like Amazon, which Donald Trump has, has already talked about applying scrutiny to, but also some of the big platforms like Google and Facebook. I mean, I know there is a large contingent of, of people, including um, some of your team, who thinks that they should be broken up in various ways. You know, does this signal that that might be coming? And what can those companies take away from what's going on right now? Yeah, it's a good question. And, you know, we we don't yet know what the enforcement priorities of the Trump antitrust um, agencies will be. I think at the level of, you know, what are the theories of harm that are being identified here? It's basically the government saying, Certain forms of vertical integration creates create conflicts of interest that we think are impermissible and we think are anti-competitive, right? So basically when you have a distributor and a content um, provider merge, that creates conflicts of interest. I think that as a theory, as a philosophy, is something that should worry the big tech platforms because they – also are massively vertically integrated in all sorts of ways that you could say um, are analogous to the kind of AT&T, DirecTV, Time Warner situation that would be created. So I definitely think that um, government taking a stricter approach to vertical deals and the conflicts of interest that they create should be worrying to the big tech platforms. So we probably won't see Google buying Netflix anytime soon. Uh, you know, they might, but I think it would be an interesting question to see whether uh, the agencies would, would go ahead and challenge that. All right. I have one last question for you. You wrote uh, an article in the Yale Law Journal earlier this year, I think an op-ed in The New York Times, uh, making the case that Amazon may be getting too big and may, uh, you know, may need to be uh, somehow broken up or reined in. Um, can you can you briefly make that case? Because you know, when I write about Amazon and antitrust, um, you know, they all, I always hear from Amazon later, and they say they point out things. Well, like wh- look in the retail sector, you know, we're very small. Walmart's way bigger than us. Um, and if you want to make, you know, e-commerce a sector, they argue that that's that's not really a sector. They're saying basically there's no industry we play in where we are the huge giant. And so this whole idea that we're too big is misguided. How do you respond to that? Sure. So the best way to get out of um, antitrust case is just to redefine the market, right? So, you know, most uh, antitrust cases begin by asking, you know, what is what is the market definition? And so that's kind of a key place in which if you just rejigger how you define the market, you can just say, hey, look, this is actually a very competitive market, nothing to see here. I think the issue with Amazon is that it very much benefits from that kind of siloed sector by sector approach. Um, the, the real issue here is how integrated Amazon is across all these different sectors and how in many ways it's become a form of infrastructure for all of these other companies that now depend on it. I think you see it as a form of virtual infrastructure where its platform is so dominant. So, you know, something like 50% of all online shopping searches now begin on Amazon's platform. Um, That share is only growing. Um, So, you know, if you're an independent seller or producer and you want to get to market, you basically have to ride Amazon's rail so that you're visible to the public. It's 
increasingly also true in the sense of physical infrastructure. So Amazon has invested extensively in building out its uh, physical network and delivery and logistics capabilities so that a host of other producers and and retailers are now also dependent on its um, physical logistics and infrastructure. And it's also true in the cloud where, you know, Amazon Web Services is by far the largest player um, and is, is growing there too. And so I think if you start viewing Amazon as a form of infrastructure and then realize that it is competing with the very businesses that are dependent on its infrastructure and that that creates a core conflict of interest that we have in the past recognized as anti-competitive, I think that's where you start seeing these broader um, antitrust principles come into play. I should also say that in certain sectors, mm-hmm. Amazon is actually pretty dominant. So if you take the ebook market, which um, you are able to you know define as a standalone market, Amazon, I believe, has over 60% um, of that sector. And so I think you know both on a sector-by-sector basis in some instances, and as an integrated entity, Amazon's power is should be considered anti-competitive. Right. Even its own brand, Amazon Basics, is kind of the top brand in, in some small categories, I understand it. Uh, I, I, I am uh, curious, what can people do who are concerned about, you know, Facebook or Google or Amazon's dominance, but are so locked into these platforms, you know, uh, yet feel that... Um, they have gotten too big, uh, but really can't help but use them. Um, I think when it comes to political actions, it's really about continuing to um, pressure lawmakers and members of Congress. I think, you know, we've seen a dramatic shift in the last couple of years when it comes to members of Congress and how they're viewing the platforms. Uh-huh. Two, three years ago, you know, we would meet with staffers and they would just say, you know, these companies are untouchable. Consumers love them. There's no way that you're going to start an anti-monopoly movement by talking about their power. And yet, if you look at the last six months, I think that conversation has changed in many key ways, in part because you've had, um, you know, situations like the uh, Russia-Facebook um, incident. Mm-hmm. And kind of, I think I think what we're seeing is that there's this growing political awareness and then you can have about the excessive power that these tech platforms are wielding. And then you have these incident instances and incidents that end up acting as catalyzing moments where suddenly there's an opening for change and an opening for thinking about new legislative actions or new rules and regulations that could address their power. So I think continue to, um, you know, express to lawmakers that this is something that people are concerned about is, is definitely something that people can do. Okay, well, thank you so much for joining us, Lena. This has been a great conversation. Learned a ton. Thanks for having me. All right, we're going to take one more quick break, and then we'll have Don't Close My Tabs, some of our favorite things we've seen online this week. All right, it's time again for Don't Close My Tabs. April, what tab could you not close this week? So this is not like a particular story that was that incredible, but it was the subject of it and and what it means that really struck me. And that was a story in Select All, the New York Mag's kind of tech vertical, uh, on how the Tumblr founder, David Karp, is stepping down. Um, I'm just thinking a lot about that because that could mean that Tumblr might not be around for that long. Uh, Will, you probably remember when Tumblr was acquired by Yahoo, right? That was a few years ago now? 
Yeah, I was I was at the press conference in New York where Marissa Mayer very excitedly announced the acquisition and everybody in the crowd was like, oh no, that's that's going to be the end of Tumblr. Right. And I'm just thinking with this that with the loss of Tumblr, if, if we do lose Tumblr, we might not, of course, it might be revived, but, you know, losing the CEO, uh, we're not really sure what the future of it is. But if it does go away, that means that, you know, along with Vine not being around, we're going to have one less place on the Internet that's a popular place where people can kind of be weird together and, and start communities. Uh, I really enjoyed making kind of weird, kind of artsy, random tumblers of of photos that I thought were kind of a, a, a funny collection to put together. It also means kind of one less web page social media icon on the bottom of every you know, article that you see or place that you visit, right? So now we're just going to see kind of the Twitter bird, a big F, and then a little camera that's owned by that big F Facebook. We're not going to see that lowercase t Tumblr anymore. It was a corner of the internet that I actually really enjoyed. But my potentially preemptive Tumblr nostalgia aside, it could be saved. Uh, Will, what was your tab this week? What could you not close? All right. I couldn't close this tab that was from a website I'd never heard of before called Stanford Politics, which describes itself as an award-winning nonpartisan student news magazine. I went to Stanford about a decade ago. This magazine did not exist. But now everybody was reading it because it had this fascinating cover story. The headline was, How Peter Thiel and the Stanford Review Built a Silicon Valley Empire. Peter Thiel, of course, the uh, famous Silicon Valley funder, uh, part of the so-called PayPal mafia, an early investor in Facebook. He still sits on Facebook's board and an extremely controversial figure in the tech world for his outspoken libertarian views, his views that giving women the franchise has been bad for democracy. Uh, he is a, a uh, he's sui generis. He's a friend of Trump um, and an ally of Trump, one of the few in Silicon Valley. This is sort of Teal's origin story. It's, it's a story of where his weird brand of conservatism came from and this kind of conservative subculture at Stanford, which is a very, very liberal campus overall. Um, there's a publication there called the Stanford, Stanford Review that is this contrarian conservative publication. Um, I remember it from my days when I was editing the Stanford Daily, which was the main student newspaper. They actually plagiarized one of our stories. Um, uh, anyway, the Stanford Review uh, has just somehow cultivated this these these really sort of virulent strains of libertarian conservatism that 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 have veered away from the political mainstream in the United States. And so this story is about that sort of weird conservative subculture on a liberal campus. Apparently, Teal actually, before he uh, bankrolled the lawsuits that, that drove Gawker out of business, he told a group of students at the Stanford Review, um, a group of undergrads at the time, he was excited and, and apparently couldn't contain his mirth, according to this report. He said that he was about to have a huge takedown. He's going to destroy what he called a universally reviled organization. So I, I just I was just really engrossed by the idea that this that this otherwise liberal atmosphere can foster an extra virulent strain of conservatism. It reminded me of a profile a few months back um, that San Francisco Magazine did of the Breitbart editor Marlowe, uh, who was a UC Berkeley student and, and probably faced a similar situation there politically. Yeah, what was interesting to me about the Stanford Review case is that this isn't just conservatism, like in like a so socially conservative sense. This is more kind of libertarianism, and particularly it seems kind of connected to this kind of tech libertarianism or this kind of idea of being anti-government or, or anti, you know, big government and, and regulation in particular. So we're not just talking about um, 
kind of right wing values. Uh, we're, we're talking about kind of a, a market philosophy here, right? There, there is this linkage with Silicon Valley values, where you know most of Silicon Valley leans left, but there is this strain of of thinking where you can kind of you know where society should really be um, this meritocracy, and that we can we can engineer society in ways that are more efficient. And even though Thiel's views are in the minority in Silicon Valley, his thinking does represent something that is part of the overall Silicon Valley ethos that that they're now imposing on on the country and the world in various ways. Right. It's better to use software than laws, perhaps, to regulate things is the Silicon Valley ethos. And and we might find strains of that in the Stanford Review, which Thiel seems to to have a particular fondness for. Yeah, he he founded it, actually. I should have mentioned that. Right, right. Well, that's a great tab. Uh, mine is just more kind of sad. Yours is super interesting. Oh, mine's definitely sad enough, too. It's all sad this week. Maybe we'll come back with a happy one next week. All right, that's our show. You can get updates about what's coming up next by following us on Twitter at IfThenPod. You can also email us at ifthen at slate.com. You can follow me and Will on Twitter as well. I'm at April Laser, and Will is at Will Urimus. Thanks again to our guest, Lena Khan, for joining us. You can find her on Twitter at Lena M. Khan. We also have a favor to ask of our listeners. If you like this show, please go to iTunes and Stitcher or wherever you listen and leave us a review. This does a lot for helping us get the word out about the show, and we really appreciate it. Yeah, it really does help. I was so excited to see our show near the top of the rankings on iTunes this week for technology podcasts. Thank you so much to our listeners. Uh, We're really flattered that you're spending your time with us. If Then is a product of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. Our producer is the wonderful Max Jacobs. Thanks to Jesse Nichols at Fantasy Studios in Berkeley, and thanks for the additional help at Slate in D.C. from Afim Shapiro. Thanks to Don Aulis and A Room with a VU Studio in Santa Barbara. Our awesome theme music is provided by Doug Chase. We will see you next Wednesday. Bye. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.